You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. So start by knowing what you own and what you owe. We'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more now. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So I'm going to hit you with some scary statistics right off the bat. The updated cost of raising a child from birth to college, not including college tuition, right now it's a little under a quarter million dollars for a middle-income family. If you're a high-income family, it can edge all the way up to $400,000 because those high-income parents tend to spend more all along the way. But how about the cost of just starting that life, having that baby? It, too, is far from cheap. It's about $11,000 on average with no complications. But if you have issues with fertility, as many, many women do these days, hormones, they can run into the thousands. A single round of IVF can be thirteen dollars to $14,000. A donor egg can be twenty-five thousand dollars a pop and i am just getting started since 2015 this week's guest leah von bitter who is co-founder and president of ava which is the first wearable fertility tracker has been out to change all this ava measures pulse rate and breathing rate and heart rate variability and temperature, all parameters that are directly impacted by the reproductive hormones, AVA can actually predict an average of more than five fertile days per cycle in real time with 90% accuracy. And it's responsible for bringing about 20,000 babies into the world. So we hear from you all the time that a lot of you are struggling with this. And if you're not struggling with this, you know, friends, who are struggling with this, or sisters, or other people in your life, or you're afraid that you'll be dealing with it in the future. So we invited Leah on the show to talk about it with all of us. Leah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being in the studio with me. So right now, you are co-founder and president of this company, but in January of next year, you're going to take over as CEO. Exactly, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Very so excited about it. Why now? Why that shift? Um, well, so my co-founder, who's the current CEO, he wants to move into a board role. Um, so basically because of that shift, it made sense for me to step up into the CEO role. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited about it. I've been leading marketing for a while now, so I think moving into the CEO role is a, is a really nice next step. And by the time you do that, will you have hit your 30th birthday? I will not. No, I will still move into the role at 29, but then pretty soon after I'll, I'll, I'll hit the 30. That's pretty, pretty incredible. Before we talk about AVA specifically, let's just lay out the problems that so many women and, and men have with fertility. How many women experience infertility or have fertility issues? 
Um, it's really interesting how you phrase it, so I'm going to correct your phrasing there. Um, so it's really, it's women and men. Um, and we now see that around 50% of all the fertility challenges really come from the male factor. And I think that's something a lot of women always underestimate. They always think it's their fault, but it's really 50-50. Um, but overall, if you look at couples, we're saying nowadays it's probably one in eight couples who will experience infertility. And infertility is defined as having unsuccessfully tried for a year if you're under 35 or six months if you're above 35 years old. Okay. So are there a number of women? I'm thinking back to when I was trying to get pregnant for the first time. I've got two kids. They're grown, Mm -hmm. so it was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And I think after a couple of months, I thought there's something wrong with me. It's really, you have to give it a good year if you're under 35. Yeah. So those are the clinical guidelines. Um, But In reality, what we do see is for a lot of couples, they get very nervous quite quickly. And I think it's because of expectation management. Um, We are in a society where most of us believe that we are going to get pregnant immediately once we are off birth control. And because that's what you know, people have told us all of our teenage years. So we assume it's going to be really fast. We also see Hollywood movies that tell us we're going to get pregnant tomorrow. Right. Um, (laughs) So I think it's really around the expectation from a lot of couples that that are our users is it's going to go really quickly um, and I'm going to be pregnant in a month or two. And the reality is, statistically speaking, it does take couple of couples a couple of months and that is normal. Um, but there's definitely ways to optimize it and that's where we come in. What are some signs that you have a fertility issue? It's a really it's a really hard question. I mean, for a lot of couples, it's really around the, the clearest symptom of you having fertility issues is that you're not conceiving um, for even if you're trying at the right time for a really long time. Um, that is that is the clear symptom of them all. There are a couple of fertility conditions that can influence that, but a lot of those are really under the radar. So I wouldn't want anyone that is listening to this right now start to self-diagnose themselves. A lot of the actual issues you can't really see until you really go and and get tested. When you bring up the topic of fertility tests, what is the average woman who thinks she has a problem spending on these sort of diagnostics? Yeah. Um, So, I mean, it's the diagnostics and then it's the actual intervention. So the number that we have at the moment is if you go through fertility treatments and you successfully conceive a child, on average, that costs you around seventy thousand dollars. Seven zero. Seven zero. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's the number, but that includes multiple rounds. Like that includes the average rounds of IVF plus all the diagnostics around it. Um, and it's really, you know, on the fertility side, there's for a really long time there's no cost, and then suddenly all of this this big cost bomb kind of comes in, um, and that's where where the seventy k then come from. Tell me about. Ava, tell me how it works and where it fits into this $70,000 puzzle. Yeah. So we really started Ava initially because we realized that trying to conceive has really not changed in the last decades, even though technology has really evolved. So we saw that, you know, nowadays as a woman, you can you can do so many things. You can manage your health and then also all the other options you have of calling Ubers and doing this and that. But in fertility and trying to get pregnant, we were all kind of stuck with, here is a thermometer, measure your temperature, and that's the best we could do. So we were we were quite frustrated about the options, and we wanted to look into how modern sensor technology basically could improve on that process. And what we found, and we went into our clinical studies, we found that there's actually several physiological parameters. You mentioned some of them, such as pulse rate, breathing rate, and others. 
actually do change during your menstrual cycle, not only temperature, but but many others as well. And they actually do change earlier in your menstrual cycle than than temperature does. So that allows us to really in real time detect a woman's fertile window um, compared to the other options that are out there. Now, how does it fit into the bigger picture? Ava really helps you get your timing right. So there's several things that can make your journey to parenthood easier or harder, but one of the easiest things for you to control is timing. It's am I trying at the right time every every month? Um, and that's where that's where really Ava comes in and helps you to figure that out in an easy, convenient, and also accurate method. That being said, we help couples who have the potential of getting pregnant naturally. If you do not have that potential for any reason, we will not be able to help with that. We will be able to help you exclude the timing issue as one of the potential issues, but we are also we also would then at some point encourage you to take next steps because we can't take that away from you. Is that why you've priced your product with a guarantee? I mean, you offer two. It's very interesting the way you've marketed this. You offer a a version that's $299 with no guarantee and $399 with a one-year pregnancy guarantee. Mm -hmm. Can you walk me through the logic of that? Absolutely. Um, So what we um, wanted to look into is, um, I mean, basically, we, we when we launched our product at $299, um, we got a lot of people that came back to us and said, well, but maybe that's not the reason I'm not getting pregnant. How do I know that this product really works for me? And we basically said, well, you don't, and it might not work for you. Um, and so this this pregnancy guarantee that we're offering right now is kind of trying to be our answer for it. At the moment, we're still offering both options. Mm-hmm. But our answer to it is really, you pay for other if it gets you pregnant, but you don't have to pay for other if it doesn't, and you have to go and take next steps. Um, and that's what we're offering at the moment. And which are people buying? Um, they're buying both. Um, we we see around um, we see a significant part actually buying now the three ninety nine um, product at this point. But we're still we're still in a moment when we're trying to figure out: Are we going to continuously offer both? Will we will we switch to one offer? So I think we're still experimenting with that a little bit. And I hear you saying Ava, but sometimes you're also saying Ava. So I don't want to get it wrong, but which one is right? It's a really good question. Both of them are right. Um, because we're, as you can hear from my accent, we are originally a German-speaking company. So that's where the AVA is coming from. AVA is the U.S. version of it. So both both are correct. Your background that got you here is is interesting. As I mentioned, you're, are you 29 yet or are you 28 I am 29, now? Yes. You're 29. Mm-hmm. You're young. You've done a stint at Procter & Gamble in Germany. You were involved in the launch of a gourmet chocolate company. Um how how did those factors come together and say to you, I need to launch a business in the fertility space? I mean, I, I have been pregnant twice, as I mentioned, and yeah. so I have very little trouble making the leap from chocolate to pregnant. But, <laughs> um, but, but maybe you can connect the dots. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I think the most important thing is that I have spent a significant part of my life, and especially already as a teenager, um, with the topic of women empowerment. That has always been a really important part of my life. I have written about quotas for board members when I was 18. Um, so I've really, really cared about the women empowerment topic. Um, and from there, I then went, that was always kind of a, a hobby of mine, if you can, or just conviction that I wanted to live out. And 
then um, I went to India to start my first company after I graduated. And that company that I started was this gourmet chocolate company. Um, I ran that together with my co-founder for two years. And I think during that time, what became really clear to me is the connection between women's health and women empowerment. Make the connection for me. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about fertility and we're talking about empowering women, how do you see the two going together? Yeah. I think it's important to know that we see Ava as a women's health company, not only a fertility company, but really as a women's health company. We see ourselves as a research-driven company in that field with a strong vision and mission to advance women's health care. We do R&D in that space, and we really believe in using our technology across different stages of a woman's reproductive life, be it fertility, but also be it potentially contraception, potentially pregnancy, potentially menopause in the future. So all of those areas are really important to us. So we are, we're really talking about women's health in general. And I do believe that women's health in some way is connected to women empowerment. I think it's a basis for it afterwards. Um, I think it's not it's not completely linear, so you can't really say it's exactly the same thing. It really isn't. But we do see we do see a strong connection between those two topics. And that is why I've always just been really interested in in women's health. And I also personally believe that we are far behind in women's health. We're far behind in women empowerment, but we're also really far behind in women's health. Yeah, if you can go down that perimenopause road and build a tracker that tells you when the hot flash is coming, I will happily invest. (laughs) Well, thank you. I mean, menopause is one of the examples, right? But I mean, we see so many examples within women's health where where we... women enter a new stage of their life and they really don't get they really don't get the products that they you know deserve at that point they've inaccurate products products that haven't really been tested enough and it's just a big space that is underfunded and under research well and they don't really get we don't really get the information that we need either yeah partly because they're isn't a lot of information. I mean, especially our space with hormonal changes and physiological parameters. If you think about it, the fact that a small company from Switzerland is the company that starts publishing on hormonal changes and physiological parameters is wonderful, but it's also at the same time quite ridiculous that it would be us who actually take care of that. And so I believe that there's a lot of information missing because no one is researching in it. And that's what leads to then all those old wife tales that then follow because there's just a gap of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. I want to talk about the money that you've raised. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody, Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more from your money? What if you could make your savings work as hard as you do? And what if that helped you reach your financial goals faster? It all starts with having a financial checkup and getting an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, the folks at Fidelity will work with you to evaluate your investment options and various ways to grow your savings. You can get started at fidelity.com slash demand more now. We are talking with Leah Von Bitter, soon to be the CEO of AVA. AVA has raised more than $42 million, is that right, in venture yes, funding exactly. to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not always easy for women to raise capital. In fact, the statistics on the amount of capital raised by women-led companies are pretty dismal. What's your advice for other women in the space who are looking to raise? I think it would be too easy for me to give advice and say, oh, this is how we did it and everyone else. I think we were in a privileged situation. Um, I think running a women's health company um, 
makes it easier for a woman to to raise money. I also have male co-founders, so I do believe that I was in a rather privileged situation. So I I wouldn't I wouldn't dare to venture out and give other women advice around it. What is it about though being in the women's health space that makes raising easier? I think it's unconscious bias. I think if you are in another area than women's health, people would expect potentially more they they wouldn't expect diversity necessarily in your founder team while as within women's health it's almost expected and i do believe that that probably makes it easier um is it something about healthcare as well in the amount of money that they believe that you have the opportunity to make down the line sure i mean for every company and for every race that is really important but i think just the women's health specific thing probably makes it easier when we talk about women raising money you do though credit your network I know with getting you where you are today that you surrounded yourself from a very very young age with like-minded women who support other women. How do our listeners go about finding their tribe? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I actually don't think I did that from a very young age. I think I did that mostly when I moved to the United States. And so tell us about that. What brought you here? Yeah, so I moved here right after we started the company in 2015. So I was in India before, came back to Switzerland for India and probably like two or three months and then I then I moved over to San Francisco. And I think that's when I started building out that network a little more and I really appreciated it. I don't think it's necessarily the key to raising money because a lot of the people in that network are probably in the same situation as where I am now. It's much more than that. I think the fact that I always felt that it's a huge privilege to be in San Francisco and be having access to other women that run companies that are in my age. Um I don't think that comes naturally. I've lived at other places where that definitely wasn't the case. So I really really appreciated that. What comes next for both you and for the company? Yeah, I mean, I already hinted at it a little bit before. We are in the end we I I do consider us as an impact driven company and I do believe that we want to continue to research in this area and I think what you mentioned before I think menopause is an interesting one pregnancy contraception we we are doing research in all of those areas at the moment we've run multiple clinical trials at the moment in different areas and we really hope that our technology can can be the key to better outcomes for for women and their health across different reproductive life stages How about for you and children? Um yeah, I mean I hope that I'm going to have kids at some point. Um I think I've I've really when I started this company I've been really really interested in in hopefully finding a non-hormonal contraception option and I'm still very interested in that but at the same time I'm starting to be more and more interested in our conceiving product as well so I'm I'm growing with the company. I see you're playing with a ring on your finger is that a uh... Um yeah, I am married exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As you look at the whole femtech industry, what do you think the next big innovation is going to be? Yeah. I think we're in a time right now where we all expect a lot from the femtech industry and there's those crazy reports out that show us that femtech will be worth 50 billion and I I do hope that all of that is true, but I also believe that femtech is largely driven by women's health and women's health is an area of healthcare and therefore almost by definition i believe the next big thing for femtech has to be something that comes out of clinical research because that's how you grow something in the healthcare market um so i i believe that that you know it's probably going to not grow incrementally i think we will see we'll see innovation and i do believe it has to come out of a clinical environment 
As we wind this conversation down, let's talk about health care costs, because I I threw out some statistics at the top of this interview. Um, The amount of money that we spend on health care in this country, even if we don't have a fertility problem, is growing at a rate way ahead of inflation, is wildly unaffordable Mm -hmm. for a huge portion of the population. Mm. How do you square the need for these kinds of services and products and the inability of such a huge portion of the population to afford them? Yeah, I actually think that's a key. It's one of the key problems that we have right now as a society is is healthcare costs. And it's interesting for me because I do see, I see Switzerland and I also now see the US, so I do see the differences. Um, and I think for us as a company is we very much intend to come up with things that will actually save healthcare costs. I don't think we have done that so far. At this point, we're potentially an added cost unless we can prove that that decreases fertility treatments, which at this point we haven't attempted to do. But so I don't think we've done it necessarily at this point, but I'm very much intending to do so in the future. Okay. Leah Von Bitter, co-founder and president for now of (laughs) AVA. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll be right back with Kelly and your mailbag. Kelly's with me in the studio. It seems almost appropriate that we taped this show right after you came back from a weekend visiting your first friend to have a baby. Yes, it's such a big deal for me and for my friend group. My best friend Abby and her husband Matt had baby Kenna two months ago now, and they had a very easy time conceiving Kenna. So she is one of the these stories you strive to be when you set out to have a child. She timed it herself mm-hmm. with, I think, the help of an app. I should fact check this, but she timed it with the help of an app, and they basically got pregnant on their first try. So, which is amazing, and they birthed this beautiful baby girl. She's the chunkiest baby I've ever seen, (laughs) even though both Matt and Abby are like Amazons, gorgeous Amazons, which I'm sure this baby will be as well. But no, she's so chunky and just, oh, gosh. I had a good time. Oh, I'm obsessed with this child. And something else about the interview that I was really interested in that we connected to a bit was women's health and women empowerment. And for me, my answer was this idea that there's this stigma around fertility, it seems, or a stigma that comes with maybe the guilt that women feel that it's their fault if they can't conceive, and then also stigma with menstrual cycles. And just this word stigma kept on coming to mind for me. And so I encourage conversations like this one, products like hers and products in general that just don't make us feel like we're gross or that we're we're not functioning correctly or anything, all the negative emotions that can sometimes come with our menstrual cycles and And everything. Well, hormones in general. And I am on, I mean, I was not really kidding. I am on the other side of the calendar, Mm -hmm. right? And have dealt with it at age 54. I hope that I'm at the point where the hot flashes are going to start to go away. Yeah. But you know, they are detrimental, too. It is mortifying to be up there giving a speech and to realize, like, all of a sudden, 
Holy bleep. Yep. I am here it comes. Oh, here it gosh. comes. Oh, I didn't so, know you experienced that recently. And it's more than uh, more than once, which is so I'm on the estrogen patch. I've been on it for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But we have to talk about it. Yes. Because if we don't talk about it, then it's it people start to think that there's something wrong with the uh, fact that we're on it. I, I don't care. I'm on it and I'm not getting hot flashes. 20 times a day, and that's a good thing. Right. And also, your hot flashes are normal. They're right. unfortunate, but they're normal. And you shouldn't feel embarrassed about potentially sweating profusely in front of a large <laughs> group of people. I mean, that's easier That's easier for me to say than... When you're than, playing volleyball, maybe. You <laughs> yeah, don't get, right. Contextually, it's different. I think these are important conversations to keep having. Mm-hmm. And they are real financial conversations yes. because the number of people that I know personally who waited to try to have kids and then found themselves going through IVF Mm -hmm. or just stressed out and ended up in therapy because they couldn't get pregnant. There's a cost. There's a level of anxiety. There's a a huge financial impact that that comes whenever you have your children. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do, I, I like that you teed up this this topic and Catherine teed up yes, this topic. Our, you, Catherine. our colleague Catherine Tuggle suggested this mm-hmm. one and, uh, and we'll keep talking about it. Sounds good. What do we have on Mailbag? We have some questions. We have another fun name from someone who would like to remain anonymous. I encourage this. Thank you. Derby City Diva wants Where to know. Where is Derby City? Is that Louisville? It has to be Louisville, Perhaps. right? Perhaps. I don't think it says in her question. She might have said it maybe as like a PS or something that I didn't keep in, but okay. I really like it. Derby City <laughs> Derby Diva. Derby City Diva. She writes, I have been reading about the three-legged approach to retirement wealth, taxable, tax-deferred, and tax-free, and must admit I am sold on the concept, especially when it comes to addressing taxes and wealth building. Three-legged approach seems to address avoiding quote, keeping your eggs all in one basket syndrome, which we all know about, but continue to build up these massive tax-deferred account balances. I don't know what the taxes will be like in the future, but sounds like they will trend upwards. I'm a midlife divorcee who has the majority of my investments in taxable accounts. The only tax-free account I have is an HSA. I feel the strong need to build up investments in the tax-free bucket. Moreover, I want to be able to stretch the money in the tax-free bucket to my retirement health care needs so I can reduce some of the burden for my kids. My question. I'm debating whether I should invest some of my brokerage funds for establishing a Roth IRA or take out a cash value life insurance policy with chronic illness rider. The Roth IRA seems more flexible, allowing for other IRA funds to roll over into the Roth if necessary. The downside is taxes to pay for the Roth rollover. Long-term care insurance has expensive monthly premiums. Cash value life insurance with a chronic care rider seems a more affordable option to LTCI. What would you recommend? Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, So I don't think... They're an either or. Mm. Um, I I don't think of the purchasing of a long-term care insurance policy, whether you do it as a straightforward, plain vanilla long-term care insurance policy or a life insurance hybrid where you're able to pull some money out of the cash value for the use of paying for long-term care needs. Um, I I don't really think of that in the same bucket as I think about a Roth IRA and retirement savings. And maybe that's me being 
narrow-minded. I mean, maybe that is how we should think about them. I would I would say two things. Um, yes, I think the idea of having some additional money in that uh, bucket where taxes have already been paid is a good idea. You can do it by trying to find years in which you qualify to actually make a Roth contribution so that you don't have to roll into a Roth. You don't have to convert Mm. additional assets to a Roth. We've talked before about backdoor Roths on the show, and that's essentially for people who earn too much money to make a Roth contribution on their own, you make a contribution into a traditional IRA or a 401k that you then roll into an IRA and you do a Roth conversion from there. But you do have to pay the taxes when you do that, and you want to pay the taxes from outside your IRA just because it's cleaner to do that way, and you don't want to have to pull money out of tax-efficient places and get taxed on them to essentially pay for that conversion. I'm saying this very inarticulately today. As far as the long-term care insurance and life insurance with a long-term care rider, I think you buy that if you need long-term care insurance. And if you have enough money so that you won't very quickly exhaust your assets and qualify for Medicaid should you need long-term care or extended at-home care. And if you don't have so much money that you can invest your own money and pay for your own care as long as you need it, then I do think that long-term care insurance is a good idea. Personally, I've talked about this before on the show also, I bought a life insurance policy with a long-term care bucket. I did it because it just made more sense to me. It wasn't cheaper. Um, These policies, these hybrid policies, when you are asking them to do two things rather than one, are often a little bit more expensive. But I like the idea that if I didn't use the benefits in the policy, the cash value of the policy to pay for my own care that they would flow to my kids. And to me, it didn't feel like uh, like just paying premiums end after end after end that I thought I might not use someday. So so I, I'm in favor of those policies. Mm-hmm. I like them. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And that, you answered my question of, like, does she need the long-term care? Yeah. It, people in the middle yeah. need long-term care. Those of us who are not so fabulously wealthy mm-hmm. that we couldn't put our money to work and know that we could fund our care forever. Yeah. Or those of us who also don't think we'll spend down so quickly that we'll very mm-hmm. um, easily qualify for Medicaid right. do need long-term care insurance. What you don't need is so much long-term care insurance that you can fund your care forever or pay for all of it. Mm -hmm. That becomes very difficult for a lot of people to afford. Instead, think of it like a gap insurance policy. Mm -hmm. Think about what you could afford to pay for on your own and how much additional you might need and buy enough insurance to cover that. Oh, that's really helpful. Okay. Thank you. And thank you, Derby City Diva, for writing in. We'll do one from Sarah. Just how critical is it if your credit report is showing an error on your date of birth? I would say that's important. That's important. That's important. So when we think of where your credit report has errors that don't mess you up, 
your address is off a little bit. Maybe they are, maybe they've got somebody else's address in there for you or or a previous address or a previous um, employer, things that are sort of way off in the past and a little bit meaningless. Your date of birth, I would suspect, could prevent a future creditor from believing that you are you. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, I would clean it up. It, it should be easy to clean up. You go to the websites of the individual credit reporting agencies. That's Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax. They all have file and error report buttons, departments. You file a report. They are supposed to take care of it within 30 days. Um, or at least get you an answer within 30 Mm -hmm. days. This should be something that should you provide them with a copy of your birth certificate may have to be notarized. They should be able to take care of pretty quickly. I hear her, though. I think I would have emailed the same question in because it it seems like the idea of changing on something on our credit reports is so daunting. It can be administratively a pain in the ass, right? I mean, dealing with the credit bureaus is not fun, right? We we know this. Dealing Dealing with with our credit is just not fun. But (laughs) just go out, send the error report in, follow up, make sure they take care of it, and then make sure that that it's been fixed with all three bureaus. Yep. I'm going to classify it for myself as just a necessary thing to do as an adult. This is adulting. Adulting. 101. Yes. One of the things about adulting that I begrudgingly do. And we'll do one more from Sarish. Do you think it's Sarish or Sarish? S-A-R-I-S-H. I I can email her and ask and clarify. Yeah, I think it's Sarish. Think it's Sarish. Sarish. I'm going with Sarish. And we'll do one more from Sarish. I once had three credit cards. However, now I only have two cards. Someone was trying to steal my identity. Oh my gosh, I didn't even realize the the order I put these questions. Uh, So I decided to cancel one to be cautious. After I canceled that card and raised the limit of another credit card by a thousand, my credit score dropped from a 790 to a 746. I was wondering, how long do you think it will take to raise it back up again? I'm 25 years old and I only have some student loans and rarely use credit cards. What advice can you give me? And she has one more question, too, but we'll stop there. Um, First of all, do not stress about this. (laughs) Please do not stress about this. This is a very, very, very small deal. Yes, I'd like to see your credit score up to 760 or above, because if you go to apply for any sort of credit, any sort of loan, maybe you want to buy a car, having a score 760 or above will enable you to qualify for all of the best rates. Um, You've likely got some debt that you're carrying on these remaining two credit cards. If you pay them down for a little while, that will help you. Just the length of time that you have these other two credit cards as you move into the future will continue to help you. And if you really want to manage your credit, just keep a very close eye on your utilization. You say you don't use it very frequently. Make sure you're using no more than 10-ish percent of the credit that you have available to you on both of these cards mm-hmm. on a consistent basis. It should go up very quickly. Oh, that's interesting. So normally we hear keeping credit utilization 
around or under 30 percent. We hear 10 to 30 percent. 10 to 30? Okay. We hear 10 to 30, but you'll remember from the show where we talked to Michelle Singletary about (laughs) her perfect score. She was only using 7 percent of her credit. So you want to supercharge this. You want to give it a kick in the pants. Keep it at or below 10. My question is, should we use our credit cards to show that we are responsible credit users opposed to letting them just sit dormant. Yeah, absolutely. You want to use them. I forgot that. One of the best ways to do this Mm -hmm. is to put a bill on your credit card that is the same every single month. Put the health club on the credit card, pay the credit card bill by automatic payment. That way you're A, never late, B, you're using your credit, C, maybe you're getting some points or some Mm -hmm. miles, and you're keeping your score up. So that could be something, too, if she's just not even using yeah. them. Interesting. Okay, and then she has one other question that will we'll fit in. And my last question is I have been writing a little autobiography because I have a really hard life and it just helps me feel good. There are many references to celebrities, privilege, and society as a whole. It is a social experiment and it is a part of a law school application. The goal would be for it to become the next social media platform. I'm absolutely not asking you for money. I was just wondering if you had any suggestions for how I could help my blog become more successful. I was considering vlogging after I take the last LSAT. I am trying not to distract myself too much. I truly admire you and everything you do, and I always appreciate feedback. I love this. She's asking you for some business advice. For some business advice. We know that video is really, really Mm -hmm. sticky. Um, And I would say figure out what your it is. Figure out what you have that you really want to be talking about in your subject matter. You know, is it for me? Clearly, we know it was it was personal <laughs> finance for Melissa Clark. It's her instant pot and cooking. Mm-hmm. We've had so many examples of wonderful women on this show who have something that they want to talk about, and because they want to talk about it, they are really authentic when they talk about it. Mm-hmm. I would say find that. In the other way of saying it is figure out what your superpower is, and then focus your blog or your vlog around that, and I think you'll find an audience. Great advice. Thank you, Jean. Thank you for everyone who writes in asking questions. You can email me at mailbag at hermoney.com. Thanks, Kelly. And in today's Thrive, we know, at least we've heard all show, that balancing kids and career, fertility and kids and career, it's never easy. But it seems often as if men make the transition into parenthood much easier than women do. And that's because, well, it's true. Although most Americans are now likely to believe it is equally important for babies to bond with both their mom and their dad, and other research points to new parents actually starting to split things like housework, the lion's share of the responsibility still falls to mom. In managing children's schedules or caring for them when they're sick, the responsibility is eight times more likely to be the mother's. That's according to a new study by Merrill Lynch, The Financial Journey of Modern Parenting. Perhaps that's why 46% of fathers are able to switch to new positions that pay more compared to just 24% of mothers. In recent years, we have made serious progress on waking up to the wage gap, although there is still a lot that needs to be done when it comes to closing it. But numbers like these offer a cautionary tale, even for millennials who came out of college earning the same as their male peers. When women hit child-rearing age, 
the wage gap threatens to open right back up again. More consistent and more affordable childcare options, that's what could make a big difference. And thankfully, there are plans in the works now for additional childcare funding, and several presidential candidates have ideas for how we can solve the problem once and for all. We will be keeping our eyes tuned to that. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Leah Von Bitter from AVA for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, I hope that you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. I also hope you'll leave us a review. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with another great guest. We'll talk soon.